Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Hi, this is Alan Schaefer. Welcome to the fourth session in our Gospel of John study. Today we're going to be looking at three separate accounts in the Gospel of John. The first in John chapter 5 is where Jesus defends his ministry and his deity against the attacks of the Jews after healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, we find the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle of Christ which appears in all four of the Gospels. And at the end of John chapter 6, one of the most important sections in the Gospel of John where Christ gives us the bread of life discourse in which he explains God's sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation. So join us today as we begin our study. Father, thanks for this day and for being here with us. Open our hearts. Thank you for this time. This is a great section of scripture. I pray that you would teach us and encourage us and challenge us. And we just thank you for this this opportunity to be here together in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 5, we're picking up here, um, verse, uh, verse 17, and, uh, you know, that, uh, sort of reiterate a little bit what we talked about last week. It's interesting to see Christ and his, uh, run-ins with the Pharisees. Um, and if you, if you were just go through the Gospels, actually, and you might want to do this sometime when you're bored and don't have anything else to do, um, go through the Gospels and just jot down every time he had a fight with the Pharisees. And you'd be surprised at how many times it was over the Sabbath. In fact, just about, in fact, probably one out of every two fights he had was over their view of the Sabbath day. And here, of course, what does he do? He heals a man on the Sabbath. And uh, what I find fascinating is not the fact that the Pharisees would say, wow, What's Joe doing walking? I mean, he's been laying there for 38 years. What's going on? Instead, all they can do is key in on why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? And uh, a lot of us are that way, too. I mean, uh, depending on what tradition you might have grown up with with your church, you know, a lot of times you, you look askance at people and you know, people have some great thing happen in their lives, and all you can pick on is the one little thing that they're, they're not doing that you think they ought to be doing or acting they ought to be acting. And uh, in this case here, uh, the Pharisees were not only angry, but actually they were angry to the point of wanting to kill him for healing somebody on the Sabbath. And it never occurred to them, how did he heal him? What's going on there? It never occurred to them. And so he answers them, the Jews, here. And he said, and, and we're going to come in here. This is one of the great sections in the scripture regarding his deity. Um, if you go to any liberal school today, or take any courses taught by liberal theologians, to a man or to a woman now, They'll all say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. I mean, he never claimed divinity. You know, that was a, that he never did that. And when you read this text here, it's very clear that that's exactly what he said. And it's very clear because the Pharisees and the Jews tried to kill him 
because he was claiming to be God. And of course, when you point that out to the liberals, they say, well, you got to understand that the ancient church went back and wrote this and fabricated this whole account to make it look like he was claiming deity. But the real Jesus never really did that. And what you have today is all these quests for the historical Jesus. What we got to find the historical Jesus. Because this, be this can't be the one. We know that Jesus of history was just a nice guy. This, this, this deity stuff and these miracles and all. We know that can't be the historical Jesus. So will the real historical Jesus please stand up? And so you got all these guys going around giving themselves PhDs and writing books on trying to find who the real Jesus is. And they miss the real Jesus because he's not what they want him to be, see. One of the things that we need to do as believers is don't create a Jesus that you like. Try to find the Jesus that is there. That, that, that's what you want to do. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, uh, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. He's calling God his father. And the Jews sought all the more to kill him because, not only, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They weren't confused like all the liberal scholars are today. They weren't confused like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and the other cults are. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. Now, of course, understand, this is not the whole interaction, right? This is not everything that was said between them, but because John's writing is how many years after the fact? Maybe 60 years, maybe? So this is not every word that was said, but this certainly is the meat of the discussion that was being said. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, my father and I, I work and my father works and we're doing the works together. And they say, you're claiming to be God. You're claiming equality with God. It amazes me with the Pharisees and religious leaders of that day, they had all this education and head knowledge, biblical knowledge. Uh, they had been schooled. You know, we're not talking about someone that was ignorant. We're talking about someone that has taken the time to study the scriptures. And yet, Christ walked right in front of them, did all these miracles. And even with all that head knowledge of the scripture, they could not draw the correlation between what the scripture said and who Jesus was. Yeah. And what is the reason for that? Yes. Spiritual blindness. And in fact, we're going to find that later on in John 6. Because in John 6, Christ is going to say a couple of times, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The reason you don't accept me is because the Father hasn't drawn you. Okay? Now, the corollary to that to understand is that unless God, and I had a long conversation with this with my nephew this week, a really interesting one. Unless God opens your eyes, you can't see him. You won't see him. Because it's not within you as a, as a fallen human being to see God if he walked up in front of you. And the greatest example of that is here's Jesus Christ who fulfilled 
every prophecy of the Old Testament. He walked among the Jews. He, he raised people from the dead. He healed people. He did miracle after miracle. And her conclusion was, he's doing this by the power of Satan. And we look at them and we say, how stupid can they be? How, how dumb, how ignorant? And yet, if we were there and God did not open our eyes, we'd have been in the same boat. And you see that born throughout the scripture. Unless God opens a person's eyes, they can't be saved. They can't see spiritual truth. <coughs> now, that does not make them not accountable, right? They can't say, well, you know, when, when the final judgment comes along, someone can't say, well, you know, the reason I rejected you is you didn't open my eyes. It's all your fault. The Bible doesn't hold that. The Bible makes it very clear that, that men left to themselves will reject God and they are responsible for that rejection. All right. We're hitting some theology here, but, but throughout the scripture, you are responsible. Christ, I would have gathered you together like a hen would gather her chicks and you wouldn't do it. You would not. Whose fault was that? God's fault because he didn't open their hearts? No, it was their fault because they rejected. It's not God's fault. So don't you think the rejection was part of the equation for the uh, rejection of God? Because, of course, God knew that beforehand. Right. Uh, it's, it's almost, this is how it was explained to me growing up over the years. You've got clay and you've got wax. The sun qualities does not stay the same, but it affects the clay and the wax differently. Right. And the decision that they made actually caused them to grow hardened in right. their heart. And they're responsible for that. They're responsible for that. Okay. And, and, and yet there is a component, all right, from God's perspective, God does not, you look at, um, look at Pharaoh. Again, again, it talks about how Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you say, well, wait a minute. Whose fault is it? Who hardened whose heart? The answer is, God did not interfere with Pharaoh's natural predilection to do what? To reject. To reject. That's, the thing, that's the thing to get the handle on. Don't say, it's God's fault I rejected him. No, it's not. If God does nothing, you will reject him. In fact, not only will you reject him, but every human being that was ever born will reject him. Because it's not within our nature, it's not within our cap capacity to take God on his terms and to see him for who he is. He's got to do the work. We love him because he first loved us. God must take the initiative. You could you could feel a sorrow for your sin for in the sense that you sense that you did something wrong, right? I mean Judas felt bad about what he did, right? Okay? So you can feel bad, but unless God opens your heart, you can never truly repent. 
do people in the world feel bad about sin, about crimes they may have done, things like that? Yeah. All right. And the Holy Spirit does bring conviction, does he not? And I think all of us in here have been in churches where we've known people who were convicted of their sin, but refused to respond. All right. So, so is that conviction, is that, is that like them being drawn, drawn by God? No, that's like them being convicted by God. The drawing is a different thing, I think, in, in this context. Okay. I know it's kind of. No, it's a good it's a good discussion. We we need to have this. We need to have this. Because what happens is some people say, well, God may draw you, but you can turn him down. Alright. Understand what I mean. Some people say God can be drawing you to salvation, but it's still your decision whether you want to be saved or not. All right. I believe the Bible teaches that's not that's I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe there is a call, then there's the effectual call. There's a difference. What is the call? Whosoever will may come. Anybody want to drink of the water of life freely come. Christ is going to later on in John 6 says, I'm the bread of life. If you want if you come, take partake of the bread of life. Well, that's an offer. Then. That's an offer. That's and that's a bona fide offer. I mean, it's available then. Yes, it's a bona fide offer. But who are the ones that are going to respond? What about the scripture says he stands at the door and knocks? Well, number one, yeah. The door, he come and suffer. Yeah, that con that that's a verse that's grossly taken out of context. Yeah, that verse is okay. Christ is what you have there is is you have the seven churches in Revelation that that. John has written these le these notes to, these little letters to each of the seven churches. And the last church, the Laodicean church, had gotten to the point where it was, we call it the apostate church. And the idea of being apostate is God was not even part of their church. He was on the outside of their church. There weren't even any Christians in it anymore. And the picture that he says there is, I'm outside knocking at the door. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in. He's talking to the church there, the Laodicean church. Now, we've taken that and we've applied it to human, to, to the individual. You know, God's knocking at the door of your heart and you've got to let him in and all of that. Okay? The point is, the only way I believe the scripture teaches that you can open the door is that God grants you repentance and then you can open the door. It's not you that decides. Now, here, here's understand the challenge here. You got to make all the verses fit. We're going to talk about that in John six. You got to make all the verses fit. All right, because you got a bunch of people that say, "Look, whosoever will, whosoever will, whosoever, it's all us. It's whosoever will." Now, those are true verses, right? They're part of scripture, right? So are they true? Oh yeah, definitely. Alright. But then you got these verses over here that says, You were chosen before the foundation of the world. There's another verse that says, God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. There's another one that says, You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Another one says, We were chosen before time began. Alright, how do those fit? 
Both of them have to fit. Whatever, wherever you want to land on this whole subject here, you got to take them all. You can't, you can't pick the ones you like and bag the rest. I've seen a lot of sermons by, by pastors who, 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 who take this view and, and, and they, they trash anybody and ridicule anyone that doesn't believe that whosoever wills, but they never deal with these other verses. You, you got to deal with them all, folks. You can't pick parts of the Bible you like. How could there be such a gross application, misinterpretation of Revelation by the so-called theologians? I mean, it, I, it's not my gospel message, the Revelation, mm -hmm. I'm story, and I'm not. I mean, how can that be used in a presentation of the gospel message? It's not part of the gospel. Because what happens is, is most people do not study the Bible and learn the Bible in its context. They learn it by grabbing a few verses. So they're indoctrinated into a specific. Yeah, it, it's yeah, and it's it's folk theology. Well, I heard this from my pastor. Well, where he get it? He got it from the one he got it. Where he get it? He got it from, you know. And you work your way back to some guy in the 1500s that came up with it, you know. And and you don't go back and and examine the Bible contextually. The only way I believe you can understand the Bible is you got to understand it within its full context. You can't pick this verse out and this one and I like this one and I like this one. It's all or nothing. But you know it also says for God so loved the world and we know that love worketh no ill. Right. So we know that God's love will not work ill and this is one of the areas that you know, I've been thinking about this election a lot since when I thought last week and because I'm trying, I'm trying to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to believe, and I and I agree wholeheartedly what you said. Where you have to take the the right, the extreme right, those scriptures you quoted, and the extreme left, and those have to come into an agreement for the truth to truly be the truth. Mm -hmm. Because God takes all that in context when He's speaking to us. Yes. And His intellect is so higher than ours, we're never going to fully grasp it. No. And when I look at those scriptures, you know, you think predestined. There's a foreknowledge. You know, He He already had His plan in His mind. That we are to take the image of Christ. All of that was preordained before time began. God had all that. And I also see this deal where he understands. He knows the end from the beginning. So as he was forming the foundation of the earth. He knew that Gary Griffin was going to be born somewhere out there in 1950. And not only did he knew, know that, he ordained that. And he ordained it. And he also ordained Adam and Eve. And he knew when he put them in the garden that they were going to fall. Mm -hmm. And in the election that I had, and he allowed them. And he allowed it, but not only if you look at the election, he elected for it to happen. If you think about the election, it was part of the decree of God. God created. This is the part I have trouble yeah. bringing all of that into harmony with the love of God mm -hmm. that worketh no ill. It's hard for me to accept a God that loves me with the perfect love that God has. That he looks at Gary and says, I ordain you not to go to heaven. He doesn't ordain you to not go to heaven. That's the election process, from what I understand. No. No. He elect, in other words, those that are saved are elected, those that are not saved are not elected. That's, no, that's that's, that's double. Reverse. Yeah, that's double. That's called double predestination. That's not, that's really not the biblically accurate view. If he elected view. those to go, then whoever doesn't go, he elected them not to go. No, he didn't elect them not to go. He did not interfere. He did not 
interfere with the natural course of where they would head. And God is just, so if he didn't interfere with their life, but he interfered with mine so that I got saved, how is that justice? Because by definition, that's fine, that's fine. Because what God does by definition is just. Exactly. Okay, so what we need to be careful of is we can't take our definition of what we think is justice, right, and apply that to God. And say, well, God's not just because he doesn't do it the way I would do it. All right. I'm not doing that. I understand. I understand. I know he's a God of mercy. Right. So so what you need to do is when you look at it, say, okay, I need to adjust my understanding of justice to conform to what I see God doing. Okay. See, now, the way I look at this, you know, I've got to figure out my own. You've got to sort through it. And it's not an easy thing to sort through. And the only reason I bring it up is because we're going to hit it. I know, and I have no problem dealing with those you know. issues. And this is how I look at it. And I, I'm pro- I could be way out in left field. God help me if I am. But I believe God knows all those things we talked about before from the beginning. And I believe he knows who's going to reject him, and he knows who's going to be receptive yeah. to the call. And I think the call yeah. is a glorified call to each and every person. And I think Christ, when he hung on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. He died for every sin that would ever be committed. Yes. I believe that wholeheartedly. His death the was death sufficient. Has been paid. Yeah. His death was sufficient to cover the sin of every human being exactly. that ever lived. He did cover it. Right? No, he it didn't. The sins of the world. He, no, 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 wait. He bore the weight. Is that? Okay, no, that? no. He, his death was sufficient to forgive every single sin. But once you say his death forgave every single sin, now you're a universalist. He paid the debt of sin. That's what I've always been taught. Okay, follow follow what I'm saying here, okay? Because I, I think we're saying the same thing, we're just coming at it from a different angle, all right? Yeah. Christ's death on the cross was an infinite sacrifice. Yeah. Being an infinite sacrifice, it is sufficient to cover the sin of every human being that ever lived, all right? Now, if you want to say it actually covers the sin, okay, of everyone who ever lives, and if unbelief is a sin, which it is, then unbelief is covered by the death of Christ. Therefore, everybody gets to heaven because everybody's sin is covered. And I know you don't mean that. And I don't mean that. Yeah. So I mean, he paid the debt of sin in the eyes of God, the debt that, which actually the debt of sin is death. His, and, and, and his death was sufficient, his death was sufficient to, to cover every sin of every human being that ever lived. Had God elected every human being to salvation, Christ, de- Christ would not have to die again. But in essence, aren't we in the grace period where uh, between the beginning of time and the judgment, the end of time, you know, God has given us this opportunity to be reconciled through Christ Jesus. That actually, actually, we've always been in grace. How has anybody ever been saved in, in, in all of human history? Exactly. By grace. Grace, grace is the foundation. Grace is the the foundation of all of our of anybody's salvation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so it's God's grace that saves anybody from Adam to the last guy. All right, but what is different is how is that grace appropriated? Well, it's always appropriated by what? Acceptance, faith. faith. Okay, in what? Well, what's God tell you? Christ Jesus, our faith is in Christ. Ours is, right? What about Abraham? Did he know about Christ? No, he didn't know about Christ. What did he know? 
He knew that God told him to move. And he said, I believe that, I'm going. He went, and that was credited him for righteousness. All right? So it's whatever God tells you, that's how you appropriate grace. All right? But for you to appropriate that grace, God's got to open your mind and open your heart so that you can see his truth, so that you can comprehend it. All right? That, that's, that's where we're getting at here. And we're going to find that in John 6. It'll come out in John 6. And maybe it'll, it'll help as we work through this when we get to John 6 later tonight. You'll start seeing Christ explaining this doctrine a whole lot better than I can. All right? And helping you sort it out a little bit. And what you're going to find when you're all said and done, and, and I told my nephew this. I said, look, all I know is this. I said, this, this, is, this is what I believe. I believe that at some point prior to time beginning, where there was no time, God in his infinite decree decreed to create the universe, to create the world. And he, for whatever reason, he was not coerced by any external force. He chose Alan L. Schaefer to be one of his children. Nobody made him do it. He didn't see that I was going to be a nice guy. He didn't see that I was going to have a great personality. He didn't know that I was going to do something because he did something. He chose me because he flat out wanted to choose me. Ephesians chapter 1 will tell you that. And he created the world. And in time I was born, and he so worked in my heart and in my life and in my circumstances that, that I came to a point where I was being drawn to him. And at some point, he regenerated me. And the first thing I did was take him, receive him as my Lord and Savior. I made a decision for him. But my decision for him was not made in a vacuum. It was made because he had already loved me. I love him because he first loved me. I didn't choose him. He chose me first. And, and when he regenerated me, the light went on. And I, all of a sudden, one day, I remember, I understood the gospel. I understood what it was all about. And boom, I had faith. I believed. I asked him to be my Lord and Savior. And I passed from death to life. God would that none would perish. Yeah. If God was willing that none would perish, then none would perish, right? If that was his perfect will. That's his desire. Desire. You got it. That's his desire. That's his desire. God always now, gets what he wants. Yeah, yeah. And I can't sort out, and one of the difficulties here, I can't sort out why God did it that way. See, I think there's an element of choice there, that the will that he's given us. You know, and, and, and you need, yeah, just work through that, okay? The problem is, and, and I, I just throw this out as a little bit, something for you to consider. The problem is with something what we call prescient foreknowledge. Prescient foreknowledge is, well, um, God elected me in eternity past because he knew that given the right circumstances, I would choose him. It's sort of like what you're saying. I don't mean it Some people mean it. You know, God chose me because he knew that I would choose him. He knew that um, if I was presenting the gospel, he knew that I would respond with a yes. All right. What that does is that makes you sovereign in your salvation. That makes you sovereign in your salvation. I don't know if I see it that way either. Yeah. 
I see give us an opportunity to be Christ Jesus. Those that accept reap the benefits of that relationship with Christ, and those that reject are punished for it. Right. But, That's how I look at it. Yeah, but the reason you're able to choose for him is because he regenerates you and enables you to do that. He draws you. No one can come to the Father except the Spirit draw him. No one can see the Son unless the Father draws him. And you're going to see Christ saying that. He's saying, the reason you don't accept me is because the Father hasn't drawn you. The Father hasn't drawn you. You, you can't see me. All right? And, and then the other issue there, when you, when you think about that, you guys, well, what about all the people that have never heard the gospel? You know, what about them? You know, well, you know, if, 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 if the theological viewpoint that God has given everybody an opportunity is accurate, all right, everybody gets an opportunity, then we should quit our jobs and find the, you know, find the jungle and start preaching, Right. Well, that's part of the commission going all the way. We're, we're commanded to do that. There's no doubt about that. But I'm saying if that's true, you know, what are we doing here studying the Bible? We need to get out and let's go knocking on doors and passing out tracts and everything we can. We'll get to that. And, and I'm sorry. I don't, this, I don't mean to take up. I'm trying look, to look this, is, this is a tough, tough, tough. This is, this is probably one of the toughest doctrinal things you got to chew on, you know, and, and my challenge has always been in class. I have a, you know, I have convictions on where I stand, but look, you got to sort it out. And at the end of the day, you've got to deal accurately and have a good explanation for those verses that Christ says, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You've got to deal with that verse just as well as you deal with the verse that says, whosoever will may come. You, Whatever you come up with has got to explain both of those. Yeah, I agree. All right. And what I've seen so many people do is they land on this side or they land on this side and they, they, they ignore half the, half the Bible. Yeah. That's, that's because they, they don't like what that side says. You know, and they don't want to consider it. You got to make it all fit. You got to make everything fit. You know, and I think I am able to do that. Now, what happens when I'm all done with that? I'm still a little bit. I call it a schizophrenic on it. Because on one hand, from God's perspective, he chose me. But I don't have his perspective, so I can't worry about that. What do I worry about? Well, I worry about me choosing him. And when I preach the gospel or I witness to somebody, I'm not saying, well, you know, if you're elect, you're in. You know, don't worry about it. You can't do that. What did Paul do? He persuaded men. He, he went and he preached the gospel and and, and he knew, well, who's going to respond? Well, Acts 17, as many as were what? Ordained to eternal life believed. Now, that verse you got to explain, too. You know, as many as were ordained. Who did the ordaining? God did. So as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. But how did Paul preach? Well, he preached to everyone. And in fact, he, he called everyone to repentance. But who responded? The elect did. The rest of them did not. Anyways, we'll get to that. Mm. Sorry. That's why you're here, and that's why, you know, that's fine. Okay. Verse 19, we'll get to there. We're, we're getting down to there. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assured I say to you, 
The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son does also in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whomever he will. He's talking about his equality with God. And this is what he's basically saying here. What I do is what the father would do. Right? Now, here's another really naughty theological thing to deal with when you, when you read this. Is Jesus God? Yes. That's not a trick question. Yes, he's God, right? Is he sovereign? Yeah. Then explain why he says, I can do nothing except the Father except what the Father wants me to do. I've not come to do my own will, but the Father's will. How does that fit in to him being sovereign? You ever think about that? Yeah, it's a good thought. Well, because, like, like Gary spoke of, I think it's the role that he has taken on in the drama of salvation, of redemption. Did the Father make him do that? Um, no, it and Philip, as you said, he basically emptied uh, himself. Re, re, yeah, he emptied himself. That's the kenosis. That's it's called the right. kenosis. That's a fancy yeah. word. You can impress Chuck Sunday. Talk about we talk about the kenosis of the of the son. I'm impressed him. But the kenosis, what is it? Kenosis was the word used for the self-emptying. He emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, some say, well, he stopped being God. Well, that's kind of problematic. Can he stop being God? No, that's not possible, right? He's still God, but what he can do is he can, in the drama of redemption, all right, submit himself to the will of the Father. And so everything Christ did, he did in accordance with the Father's will and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, doesn't he have the power? Of the yes, he does. But he didn't use his own power. He used the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're not going to sort all that out. Don't try to sort it all out in your brain because it ain't going to sort out. You just got to take it for what it says. But that also enabled him to be fully human. He came to be an example. He was a perfect example. But he's showing how he's doing the will of the Father through the Holy Spirit. And we're, our example now is to do the will of Christ, yeah. which is the head of the church. Through the Holy Spirit. And Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in, every, in, in everything except their personality. There are three distinct personalities, but Christ is self-existent. He is sovereign. He has all the attributes of deity. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Except he was unable, he, he, even though, and I can't figure this one out. I can be omnipresent and still in a physical body. Go figure that one out. I don't know how that works, but God was able to do that. All right. And and he's saying here, I did not come to do what I want to do. I came to do what the Father sent me to do. All right. And so the works that I'm doing are the by definition, are the very works that God the Father wants me to do. Therefore, the works that Christ is doing are done in what power? The power of God, not the power of the devil. The power of God. He's equating himself. And I said, not only that, 
Just as the father can raise the dead, I can raise the dead. Now that's something that no false prophet was able to pull off. In spite of what Rex Humbard says. All right. And not only this, now, 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 now he also talks here about the judgment. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. In what sense? What kind of judgment is this? Eternal judgment. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. See what Christ is doing. Christ is equating his mission, his purpose, his message, his actions, his persona with that of God the Father. If you dishonor me, you're dishonoring the Father. All right? You reject me, you reject the Father. And the Father has granted all judgment to me. In other words, the Father says, whatever you decide, I decide. He's equating his judgment, his honor, whatever he does with that of the Father. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. If you listen to me and you believe in me, you pass from death to life. Now, that's the human side of this. He'll talk about the election business later on. But right now, from the human perspective, who goes to heaven? The people who believe, right? They believe. All right? Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Uh, uh, okay, follow what he's saying here. The time is coming in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Is that general or effectual? Time is coming. He's talking about his ministry. He's talking about, I think, here the spiritually dead people. The time is coming when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Right? And those who hear will do what? In what sense? Spiritually. The dead are hearing, but the ones who hear are what? The ones who believe. Okay? This concept is going to be expanded later on in 6. That's why, you know, that, that going back to our discussion on the whole sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, you can get 20,000 people together, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the dead are listening, the spiritually dead are hearing a presentation of the gospel of Christ. Who believes? The ones who hear, right? That's from the human perspective. This is this is from the human perspective right now, from this plane. Now we can argue about well, why do they hear? And he's going to later on say you can only hear if the Father draws you. But here, the people who the dead who listen, and all the dead will listen, but the ones who hear, and the idea of hearing there is not. Hearing audibly, it's understanding, right? Ask that to your kids. You're not listening to me. I'm listening to every word. Yeah, but you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. There's a difference. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. 
The idea of life in yourself is what? What's the theological term for that? Aseity. Aseity. Yes. A-S-I-E-T-Y. It's a theological term. And what it means is that God is a non-contingent being. His existence does not depend on the existence of anything but himself. Self-existent. All right. My existence depends on the existence of God. Subtract God, I go away. All of us go away. So we are not self-existent. God's existence depends on God himself. Jesus is equating one of the greatest attributes of deity, self-existence, to himself. The Father has life in himself. I have life in myself. And I can give that life to whoever I want to give life to. And he's given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. This is not the spiritually dead. This is everybody. And by the way, don't create a theology of resurrection on this passage. This is a general statement. Someday everybody in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will be raised again, right? Some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Now, the idea there, done good, you know, people say, yeah, you know, this is salvation by works. No, 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 no. What is Christ saying here? How can you do good things? You're already a believer, right? Can an unbeliever do good things? Can they please God? No. No. Can't please God. Uh, Romans 8 tells you that. Romans 7, 8. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Period. End of discussion. They might do right things, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah. You can't please God. Right. You can't. Your best, The best you do are stinky, filthy, menstrual, bloody, icky claws you want to trash. That's the best. All right? You tell self-recognition or a selfish reason. A, a, a pagan person outside of salvation cannot please God. Period. They can't do good things. Could this be a reference to the fruit of the Spirit? You know, if you're I think it's a fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and generally, and there's, there is a, an element of truth here, generally, the severity of judgment is dependent on what? For the unbeliever. What they did, right? I mean, Hitler's going to have a little bit rougher time than many others in eternity. Hell is hell. Yeah, but there, the hell, the, the the degree to which so, someone suffers eternally is dependent on their deeds, right? Even the lightest case of hell is going to be worth anybody or one. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not going to be a, a yeah. I told the guy, if you burn over eighty percent of your body, or if you burn over ninety-five percent, how much difference in pain are you suffering? And, and and not only not only that, but part of the anguish of hell is not really as much the physical yeah. torment; it's the emotional, mental component. Now, you know, just just a short side detour here. How do you know what 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 evidence is there in Scripture that there are different degrees of punishment in hell? Well, you know the story of the rich man who in hell he left it up and died. Well, he just was in pain. You know, it could be the same pain for everybody. 
Well, we're, we're rewarded with, you know, during the millennium, we'll rule with Christ and reign with him in various degrees. I'm saying with good, good and bad. So is that... Is that uh... No, the, the, idea, the idea of 1 Corinthians 3 is the good and the worthless. The worthless will be just that, worthless. God will reward us for what good we've done, gold, silver, precious stone. The rest of it will be burned up. It'll be worthless. We will not get a reward for that. We won't be punished for that as a believer. Yeah. Well, could it be the pit that's reserved for the devil and, and his angels? Is that kind of a worse judgment? Well, that's a yeah. yeah. Satan's going to have it probably worse than any. Right. What I'm saying isn't that an, uh, an indicator that there are worse uh, judgments for some? That could be. What eternity though? Yeah, eternity, like the fire. Like the fire, we have different. Um, there will be, people will suffer to varying degrees depending on their deeds. What evidence would you have for that? Okay, well, let me ask a question. Let's say John is right, and everybody gets the same punishment in eternity, right? Same punishment. Then why is there a need for the great white throne judgment? What need is there? You have to be given the body that would endure punishment. Well, why couldn't he do that at the moment? If everybody gets the same punishment, everybody gets the same degree, why why have a great white throne? So you're implying that the great white throne, we get different degrees of new bodies? I wouldn't say new body, but but there will be an element of punishment that differs between person to person. Not only that, but what does it say? The books were open and the dead were judged out of the things written in the books, right? So why would God have a judgment to judge the, un, the unbelievers according to their works if there was no meaning to that? If everybody got the same punishment, just throw them all there and be done with it. You know, there's no need for a judgment. There's no need for for the books to be open. There's no need for this exposure. Well, now, uh, just for that, just for uh, conversational purposes, wouldn't that line up with God and, and who He is and how um, you know He would give that person exact reasoning for their Separation from him, and not only that, not only believe that, but are you telling me, let's take let's take a baddie, Hitler was a pretty bad guy. Do you think God would be just or justice would be served for Hitler to get the exact same punishment as a great philanthropist that did a lot of good that you know, yeah. It says if you're guilty the least, you're guilty the whole. Eternally, there's no difference. You're going to hell. I mean, lake of fire. Eternally, that's, you are going to lake of fire. I mean, I mean, sin is sin, right? Sin it's is sin. It's terrible at the very best. Why don't judgment is different? It's a, it's like the antichrist. Well, antichrist is not going to be there. He's going to be in the lake of fire yeah, beforehand. You know. I mean, we we could debate this back and forth here, but. But I, I think they're. Oh, excuse me. I just wanted to uh, make a point. Uh, Matthew 10, right. 16 says, Surely I say to you, it is more probable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that. Certain so there, 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 certainly there is a hint. 
and and certainly the Bible talks about it's more tolerant for this person than that person. And Christ said it was better for Judas to never have been born. I mean, there are hints throughout Scripture that there is a differing degree of torment, whether you want to call that a different degree of physical torment or just the mental anguish and guilt and conscience of the sins that you've done, the weight of sin that you committed in life, weighing you down in eternity, I believe there is a difference. And the reason I believe you have the great white throne judgment is because that's when the clock stops on human history. And, you know, for example, I often thought of Hitler, did his evil cease when he died? No, it did not. It endures to this day. If God's going to be totally just, which he is, Hitler is not only responsible for that which he did in life, but for whatever evil lived on after his death. And whatever evil he caused and his influence caused in the world, God is, that's all in the books. And God's going to bring it all to his mind. The Bible teaches that when you become a believer, that is expunged from your record. Now go think about that. It's expunged. It's not there. From God's perspective, judicially, you never did it. I don't know if the question that he was getting at was the influence that he had before he became a believer. It's all, it, it's, it's, it's erased. But in the still people who, you know, led by that influence, they're like, what's been in him? They're still, they're still responsible. They would still be, if Benny Hinn comes to know the Lord right now, he's not a believer, you understand that. Hopefully. If he, if he became a true believer and got run over by a Mack truck on the way home, he would go to heaven. He would not have, it, he, would, he, would, he would enjoy eternity with the rest of us. All right. But the Bible says when it comes to his reward, he would suffer loss. He would suffer loss. False prophets. Sorry. Yeah, T. Jakes. Same guy. Same one. Mm -hmm. I'd run the other way. Turn TV off. Go watch Star Trek or something. Yeah. They are. They are. They are. But what what you see, you know, getting back to this, what Christ is saying here, there's coming a point in time when all the dead will rise and they will be judged. And there will be a judgment. For the believer, our, our, our judgment is going to be one of reward. And And depending on how faithful we serve Christ here, we will have a different place of service in the in the kingdom of God. All right. Now, I don't think that will carry off into the eternal state. Right. Because who are you going to rule over in the eternal state? Everybody's perfect, right? Who are you going to rule over? Nobody. <laughs> you know. So, you know, that's the first will be last. The last will be first, you know. But on the unbeliever's side, 
there will be, I think, a severity more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Sodom and Gomorrah was really bad. They were so bad, God wiped them out with fire and brimstone. Now, he didn't do that to Capernaum. Why, why, why is it worse for Capernaum? Because Capernaum had the incarnate Son of God walking there, and they rejected the full light. I think if you look at the degrees of hell and, and punishment, surely anyone that came close enough to Christ to see him, to touch him, to talk to him, uh, even those that have heard the gospel since that time, but, you know, all those Pharisees that, you know, consented unto his death and bore false witness, I mean, if there's ever uh, a greater punishment, that you would understand how, when they stood before God, that there had to have been. Because, because they, they are responsible. They were close and missed it. They were responsible. They were that close and missed it. Judgment is according to light. Romans 2 also talks about this. Much is given, much is required. Much is required. There is an element. And he's saying here, there's coming a time when all the dead will be raised. And who's going to be doing the judging? Christ is. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. What Christ is saying, when it comes to judgment, the Father and I are on the same page. I'm not doing it because I want to do it. I'm doing it because the Father does it. We are on the same page. He is equating himself with God here. And now, not only does he equate himself with God, but then he gives him... And how else do you know that I am who I claim to be? He calls in four witnesses. Witness number one is John the Baptist. He said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. If I'm just coming here and saying I'm God with no, no witnessing, nobody to witness that, I can be dismissed, right? And we've got a lot of people do that. Claim to be this and claim to be that, and there's nothing to back it up. He says, okay, who's the first witness? Well, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for time to rejoice in his light. Who was the number one witness of Christ? John the Baptist. And how do you know that? that behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Christ is even saying, you went and listened to him. You believe. And, and, and you believed him, and you rejoiced in his light, the, the, the light that he shed, the, the, the truth, and the light here is equated with truth, the truth that he, you, you, you were there for a time being. He bore witness of me. All right? And not only did he witness of me, but I have a greater witness than John for the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. Not only does John bear witness of me, but what am I doing? His miracles. The healing. The raising of the dead. That should have tipped the Pharisees off. But no. And then verse 37, he says, Not only do I have the witness of John and the witness of my works, but I have the witness of the Father. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me Listen, but you have not neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. What's what 
that the uh, Christmas story? No, I don't think that is at all. What that is, is I think that's regeneration. Who are the ones who believe the witness of the Father? Who are the ones who believe the witness of the Father? Who are the ones who believe the persons who believe? The believers. The believers. We believe the witness of the Father because we're believers, because the light's gone on, because we are regenerated. We see, we understand. And he's saying, you don't see that because you're not regenerated. You don't see me for who I am because you're not born again. Although he did not use the term born again, it's, that's the idea here. And not only that, he says, but I have the witness of the scriptures. You search the scriptures. And the idea there is that you guys are out there every day searching the scriptures. Now, these Pharisees were smart cookies. Most of them could quote the Old Testament almost verbatim. You know that. Now, that's better than anybody in your church. These guys knew the, they knew the Bible. They knew their scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. You, you search the scriptures, for in searching the scriptures, you think you're going to find eternal life. And these are the very things that testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me to have life. The scriptures themselves, the very scriptures that you read and that you study testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me to have life. Now, why weren't they willing to come to Christ? from the human perspective. Jealous envy. He was not the Messiah. We want the Messiah to come in here and throw the Romans out and we want the millennium, you know, bag this repentance business. The income, he wasn't, the, he wasn't their image of who they wanted the Messiah to be. But if they had read their whole scriptures, they would have understood who the Messiah was going to be. But they didn't want that one. They wanted the other one. And he said, you search the scriptures, you think you have eternal life, they testify of me, but you won't believe me. You're not willing to come to me to have life. He says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in the Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I come in my Father's name, doing my Father's will, with the validation of John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, everything else, you don't want to receive that. But some other joker comes along and says, I am the Christ, and you'll listen to him. You'll believe him. How can you believe, you who receive honor from one another, and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? How prevalent were other claimed messiahs during Christ? I think MacArthur's commentary said there's about 68 of these guys that show up. During Christ's life or before or after? Uh, during that, that period of time between, you know, the, the first centuries. And even, even Gamaliel said, well, we've had Thutis and Judas. Remember that, the Thutis and Judas? And you had these guys popping up here and there. And the Romans go out, kill them, and that'd be the end of it. And then some other guy would come up along and say, I'm Christ. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Mm -hmm. That contributes to, you know, why I didn't believe. So it could be a contributor, but but the problem here, here you've got you got a guy over here saying, "Hi, I'm I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah," and he doesn't do much of anything but cause trouble. Here's somebody says, "I'm the Messiah," and he raises the dead person, he heals this guy, he puts blame, you know, and I'll say, "Hmm, I think he's the Messiah." I mean, that's that's what you see here, the ridiculousness of it. Okay, Christ. Guys were telling what they wanted to hear. Right. They wanted to get the 
out. God's going to help us. We, we got the faith. We get right with God. We'll go out here and we're going to beat them out. They're going to eventually, we'll have our freedom back in Christ's game. Talking about repentance and, you know, taking up your cross. He's told them what they needed to hear. The other people told them what they wanted to hear. Yes. And look, another aside. When you're talking to people about Christ, don't tell them what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. Exactly. All right? And let the chips fall. Well, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm at the wreck, nobody will be saved. Fine. Right? Are you going to water down the gospel to get people in the kingdom? See, that's what we do, don't we? We water it down. We make it easy. Christ didn't make it easy. He's telling these guys, you know, the reason you're not listening to me is because it's not within you. It's not been granted to you by the Father. That's why you won't believe. Yeah, the reason you don't believe is because God doesn't give you the eyes to see. You're blind. Well, what did, what did Paul say in Ephesians 4? The God of this world has blinded the minds of them who do not believe. That's Corinthians. And in, 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 in Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 4, you are blind. The world is blind to truth. They cannot see it. Unless God shines the light, you won't see it. Therefore, it's not you who saves anybody. It's God who saves them. So you needn't water it down to make it acceptable to people. Because then what they believe in is not really the gospel, right? He said, do not think I shall accuse you of the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. If you would have believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words? Christ says, Moses wrote about me. And you, 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 you know, Moses is the great prophet. You won't listen to him. If you don't listen to Moses, whom you say you want to hear, you're not going to listen to me. I'm not in here for my own honor. He says, you're not listening to me. He says, I don't need to accuse you. Moses will. Moses is going to rise up and say, I wrote about him. How'd you miss him? He's there. How'd you miss it? And the answer is, because they are, from, from the human perspective, Christ was not what they wanted. They are in their sin. They love their sin more than they love Christ. From the divine perspective, they are dead, blind, spiritually dead. They cannot see God. They cannot know God. They cannot respond to God any more than a body on a morgue table can get up and walk out. You can't. Let's see how far we get in six here. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This is a small sea there, shallow. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. This is Christ doing the many healing, the miracle, the healings. And he contracted a crowd. And by the way, these were not the lower back pain, headache type junk that you see. Yeah. These were people with physical, organic disease. And even the, the, in Mark here, when it talks about this, the word maimed there can even mean people who are missing limbs. There were people walked in without an arm, they got an arm. They walked in with one eye and they got two eyes. I mean, 
this was bona fide healing here. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him. He said to Philip, what, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Here's all these people. He's doing these miracles, and he's drawing this massive crowd of people. And they're coming towards him, and he asked his disciples, where are we going to get some food to feed these people? Now, they didn't have McDonald's and things like those in those days. Um, you brought your own food along, basically. And notice what it says here. He said this to test them because he knew what he was going to do. Christ already had this all planned out, but he wanted to see, well, let's see how the disciples respond. So you've always got a bean counter in every crowd. Philip answered, always got an accountant there. He pulled out his little abacus that he always carried with him and did some calculations. Well, about 200 days wages is not sufficient for them. Denarii was a day's wage. He said 200 days wages is not enough to feed. Even all of them, they might have a little bite. But one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Andrew says, well, all we... we so, so you got the bean counter that's out trying to figure out what you need. You got another guy that's scrounging around. He says, well, this is all we got here, about five little loaves, two, two little fish. So, so what was, I mean, how did he get the money? He, said, he didn't say they had the money. He said, I've calculated that if we had 200 days wages, we couldn't buy enough bread to just feed them a little bit. Yeah. He's not saying, he's saying to feed these people, it's going to take 200 days wages to give them just a little bite. He's not saying we have 200 days wages. So they haven't got the food, they haven't got the money. They haven't got the money. Peter, Philip, you know, Philip found out, well, we ain't got the money for this. Philip just explained the magnitude yeah. of the need. Yeah, Andrew says, well, we haven't got the food. We got five little loaves and two fish. That's about the extent of what we got here. All right. And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, by the way, there are two feedings in the, in the Gospels. There's the feeding of the five and the feeding of the four. They're two distinct events. One was in the springtime when there was grasses. The other was in the fall when it was dirt. Okay? Two different occasions. And by the way, I think this is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. All right? Um, make the people sit down. Another one scratched in place. So the men sent down a number about 5,000. Okay, do the calculation. You got 5,000 men. How many people were there? Some say it could even be up to 20,000. Maybe even 20,000 people. I mean, we don't know, but 5,000 men and about 20,000. Now, were there exactly 5,000 men? Not Probably not. It, you know, it's about five thousand men here. You know, um, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he gave them thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples of those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Now, how much was that? A lot. A lot. In fact, one of the disciples uses the term 
um, kortatso, that's a, funny, a fancy Greek word, it means they were full. They couldn't eat another bite. Now that was a rare thing in those days. Most people didn't eat. Yeah. They couldn't eat another bite of this food. And now why did Christ have the disciples in on this? He's trying to make a point, right? Did they get it? No, I didn't get it. All right. But he's trying to make a point to them. Okay? And, he just, and, and the disciples distributed to those sitting down like was the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, cortazzoed, foddered up, they'd eaten their full. He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so nothing is lost. Go gather what wasn't eaten. Well, the disciples need to eat. Yeah. They gather themselves and filled 12 baskets. The idea of basket, it's a small basket. It's a basket for like a lunch basket. So they went through there and there was 12 baskets of fragments left over. Of the five barley loaves which were left over by them had eaten. These, then these men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. The men who were there, the 5,000, what did they see? This is the prophet. This is the prophet. Now you say, hallelujah, we got 5,000 converts. Do you? No, what do you have? 5,000 temporary followers? Yes. 5,000 temporary followers. Never make the mistake that because somebody comes down the aisle, prays a prayer, and signs a card, and gets baptized, means they're really a Christian. That's right. Uh, remember, uh, Simon Magnus snookered Philip, didn't he? Acts 8. Joined the church. With all he was in. Peter comes up and says, you're still in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. You better pray and hope that God will give you repentance. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and make, take him by force to make him king, I mean, stop and think about it. This is free food. These people had never had this before. In fact, probably most of the people there had never eaten their fill of anything in their life. I mean, we're spoiled in this country. Our problem is we have too much to eat. In those days, people worked all day long for just the food that they had in front of them. Can I ask a question? Yeah. You know, you talk about the kingdom was offered, but uh, they refused, and so the bona fide offer was withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Here we see where the masses of people would have made it king. Now, okay. What's the difference there? You'll find out in the next few verses. Because Christ could have stayed there because he did depart when he was going to. You'll find out in the next few verses. Your answer, your question will be answered in full. He found that they were going to want to make him king, so what did he do? He departed into a mountain. And when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. So they, they're going to get in a boat and go across the sea. Jesus was not with them. And the sea rose because a great wind was blowing. And when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid, but he said, 
it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now, the other Gospels fill in the, you know, the whole thing of Peter and all of that, and we, we rag on Peter and say, you know, what it was, why are you so, you know, come on, Peter. Well, there are 11 guys who were still in the boat, weren't there? I mean, let's get after them. Um, but the whole point there is that they're going to cross, so they're going to cross the other side of the sea. They're getting away from the crowds. All right, and the answer is, why did he do that? I mean, he could have been king. All right. Well, verse 22. On the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got in the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get over here? But, but not, okay, now, follow, what's going on here? They're looking for breakfast. All right, dinner was great yesterday. But we want breakfast. And, there, uh, and, and, and the hint here is chiding Jesus. Why did you leave us? Why did you come over here? And Jesus answered and said to them, and this is your answer. Most assured I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What was the motivation for them wanting him to be king? Free food. Free food. It had nothing to do with repentance. It had nothing to do with him being the son of God. It had nothing to do with them believing what he said. It had nothing to do with spiritual regeneration. It had everything to do with free food. He said, you didn't come over here because of my teaching. You came over here to eat breakfast. That's why you're here. That's a good lesson for us today because we have a lot of teachers on the TV that tell you, you know, if you get right with God, you get rich, and you will see faith. You've got a whole list of physical things you can enjoy as a Christian. When the reality is, we're seeking, we're walking our Christian faith because we're seeking Jesus Christ. Do you want, do you want people to like you for what they get out of it? That's right. Think about that. How do you? How would you feel if someone wanted a relationship with you only because there was some benefit to them? That's right. I don't know about you, but I want somebody to love me for me. Exactly. How do you think God feels? So whenever you present a gospel, whenever you see a gospel presentation that's premised on the notion of what you get out of it from God, that's a bad presentation right yeah. there. That should make you run and screaming. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about what God gets. It's about a relationship. And is it true that all of our needs in eternity will be met? Absolutely. But that's not why we become Christians. You, you, we use God. We... we 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 it's horrible you know when i think about it 
And God wants people to love him for who he is, not for what they get. And Christ saw right through these people. Their, their, their desire to make him king had nothing to do with the, them actually even believing he was the Messiah. All they saw was food. Hey, we won't have to work for a living. We'll get our king to, you know, give us food every day. It's interesting that they not only rode from the island where they were to this other place, when they saw he wasn't there, they rode to another place. They're <laughs> tracking him down because, you know, yeah. Yeah. They're bona fide groupies. Yeah. So what purpose did it serve in the end? It, it, it shows the character of God not, and it shows you the character of the people it shows you the character of God in the sense that God is merciful even though he is being used it shows you the character of the people in that they were not interested in Christ for who he was they were interested in what he did and this is even made evident by the next conversation on the bread of life I wonder too, how many of those people that ate of that bread and saw that miracle were also in the crowd and said, crucified. There's possibility yeah. that some of those that were in that crowd doing the very same. These people, and you see this borne out not only here but in John 8, the true disciple are those who stick with Christ and obey his word, not the ones who are in it for what they get out of it. And we have today, so you have churches full of people that are in there only because they get some little thing out of being there. They get their ears tickled or they get, you know, feeling good about being there. But when it comes right down to really loving God for who God is, see ya. They don't want anything to do with that. And when Christ, and later on here in John 6, when Christ starts laying out, here's the cost. You want to be my disciple? Here's what it costs you. What happened? Bye. I'm not willing to pay that price. See ya. And he left. Well, Bart's right. We need to take a break. Let's take a break and uh, come back in about 20 minutes. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.